Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. We are speaking with Mackie Craven from OpenView Ventures. Mackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We share an alma mater. <laughs> so tell us about your investing focus. Let us get to know OpenView and you and how big is the fund? What size investments do you like to make? Let's uh, acquaint our community with your activities. Yeah, I, I'd be, uh, be delighted to. Uh, so I'm a partner at OpenView. Uh, we're a Boston-based venture capital firm. Uh, we're investing out of our fifth fund, which is just under $300 million. We've got about a billion dollars uh, overall under management. Um, we typically focus on a couple dimensions. One, we invest exclusively in software companies and uh, mm -hmm. defined as sort of B2B software companies. Uh, two, we invest uh, at a pretty specific stage in a company's life cycle. And, and I feel like when many venture capitalists use the word stage, they mean something like a revenue run rate or a letter on a round or an amount of capital they might want to put to work. Uh, I actually mean none of those things uh, when I use the word. I think of it much more operationally in terms of where a company is in bringing its product to customers, finding uh, what I would call a repeatable value proposition, uh, and mm -hmm. perhaps beginning to put the foundations in place from a go-to-market perspective, from a team perspective, from a process perspective, to hopefully um, get to, to be a large and, and enduring business. So all software, all at the expansion stage, and then aside from the core investing team, we have an operations group that's actually larger than our investment team that works with these expansion stage software companies in, in really the two operational areas um, we found are, are most critical for scale. One is around talent. So we've hired about 300 people directly into the portfolio over the last three and a half years. Uh, and the other is in, in building that go-to-market reaching, uh, serving, and providing great value for, for their customers. Um, given that we think about the stage that we invest, not directly related to letter on around or, or check size, um, those vary. So uh, for us, uh, and in, we've made initial investments as small as four or five million dollars, uh, initial investments as large as, as 25 million dollars. Um, we're, you know, you find typically that we're leading series A's and series B's. Uh, although occasionally um, we've done uh, a Series C. Uh, and it's also important to note that that check size uh, does not, is not necessarily related to, to which round. In fact, one of our, our largest initial investments was in a bootstrap business uh, that had grown quite quickly to, to several million in revenue and, and had the opportunity to be a generational company. And the first investment in the business's life cycle was, uh, was that $25 million. So let's uh, double-click down on some of the stage points that you've made. Um, let's say you're looking at a four million series, five million, four or five million series A. What do you look for? What metrics are you looking for? And let's, for just for simplicity's sake, let's uh, talk about software as a service uh, type of investment. So let's talk in MRR, ARR kinds of terms. What are you looking for to for a company to qualify for a four million, five million series A? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, it's probably worth saying briefly that uh, quantitative metrics are, are absolutely a piece, um, but are only a piece of, of the story, right? Looking for outstanding founders, differentiated technology, and market opportunities that are, are large enough to support substantial and, and enduring businesses are, are all critical. Um, but zooming in specifically on the quantitative metrics, um, we're certainly looking you know, for businesses often that have at least a million dollars in annual mm -hmm. recurring revenue. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, we've invested in businesses that have less than that. We've certainly invested in businesses that have more. Uh, often those companies are, are growing uh, at a relatively rapid clip. So, you know, usually well over 100% year over year, although that's mm-hmm. also a function of their ability to invest in the business, right? So bootstrap businesses that might be growing at the kind of a lower end of that spectrum we'll, we'll look at certainly differently than we think of businesses that have raised, let's say, a, a, you know, $1 million to $3 million in seed capital that they've had the opportunity to put to work. So we certainly look at that. Um, in terms of unit economics, which we tend to pay more attention to than we necessarily do the absolute revenue scale or recurrent yep. revenue scale of a business, um, and frankly more than the growth rate, um, you know, an efficient payback period so certainly something that's less than 18 months, ideally less than 12, uh, although the, the single metric that we look at uh, more closely than any other is the idea of, of net negative churn. So if you're acquiring a, a dollar in MRR or ARR today, in a year, on average, in your customer base, or in six months, or in 18 months, does that dollar shrink to 90 cents? Does it grow to 120 cents? Or uh, one point, you know, two? Does it grow perhaps even to, to two dollars? Um, and then, how much of that is call it driven by the company, or you know, co- formal customer success work? or in some sense is just the very nature of the product. Either it's use, it might be usage-based pricing or seat-based pricing, but a company is naturally buying more or consuming more uh, on their own. And the reason we focus on that metric uh, most importantly, and, well, there's really two, one uh, is that it does tend to be more of a function of uh, customers' interaction with product than it really is a function of uh, an operational activity in the business. And the second, um, and partially because of that, it happens to, to be more stable uh, across different scales um, mm-hmm. than some of the other metrics. So whether we're talking about a unit, one customer, 10 customers, 100 customers, 10,000 customers, um, having a strong embedded net negative churn or net expansion in the business allows for high growth and, and often sort of better profitability as companies scale. Yeah, and then it also gives you a flavor of how good a product it is. Does, is the product really meeting, you know, the needs of the customers and so forth? I think churn is a very good indicator of that. Of course, and, and coming back again to our bright line in the sand, it really doesn't have to do with revenue scale. It has to do with can we validate that repeatable value proposition or, or you know, said it another right. way, potentially, that product market fit. And aside yeah. from conversations with customers or going out to the market, that quantitative metric is, is often uh, speaks most strongly to that point. So I'm going to switch the uh, question to another quantitative met- metric that comes up all the time in early stage financing, which is TAM. And let me phrase the question slightly, um, you know, differently. You know, we are right now at the beginning of 2018. Lots of stuff have already been built. Uh, often we are seeing there are lots of great niche opportunities, not necessarily these, you know, multi-billion dollar TAM opportunities. So there could be, you know, 200, 300 million dollar TAM opportunities um, that are perfectly fine companies that can be built with, you know, one to five million dollars in investment up to, you know, 10, 15, 20 million in revenue and then perhaps exited, you know, without too much investment. So some VCs out of hand discard these kinds of opportunities. They're just not interested in engaging. 
And then there are some we are hearing are actually acknowledging that we are in a different stage of the technology cycle and these opportunities are perfectly fine opportunities for making money. Where do you fit in this continuum of thinking? Yeah, I think it's it's, it's a great question. Um, and and I you know I think we have certainly see that there are a large number of you, know, you call them smaller niche opportunities, whether they're vertically based um, or carving out segments uh, of a of a market, building a product that's very specifically suited um, to yep. those segments. Um, but uh, I will get to in the second part of an answer. Actually, I'm not sure that that we're seeing fewer multi-billion-dollar opportunities than. Um, than we have before. I, I do think we're at a very interesting moment in the technology cycle, particularly um, with not the creation of, but but really the the application of machine intelligence solutions that will affect every area of existing category of software and, and build new ones. But if we put a pin in that for a second to answer your question directly, um, for horizontal applications, things uh, that in theory any company uh, could use, um, mm-hmm. We are looking at you know multi-billion-dollar um, target addressable markets, right? Um, think companies that can be large and, and enduring. For call it uh, vertical software applications, um, mm-hmm. there tend to be network effects uh, and often a best-of-breed uh, application in a vertical software market can take you know the leader can take 60 to 70 percent market share as opposed to yes, a horizontal market. Exactly. The leader might only be able to take 20 to 30 percent market share. And so yep. while the overall market size is smaller, um, the ultimate revenue opportunity of the company could be similar. And so in yep. those cases, we're, we're absolutely excited to, to make those investments and have made many um, vertical software uh, investments. In fact, one of uh, our companies that's gone public uh, in Structure started out selling a learning management system into higher education. It certainly expanded from there. Uh, but when we made the investment in the company, it was absolutely a, a vertical software market. So we're excited mm-hmm. about them. We've had success in them. Um, but ultimately, uh, want to invest in companies that have, call it similarly ambitious uh, revenue scale opportunities, whether or not their overall markets are, are the same size. Yeah. Okay, great. Excellent uh, answers. What about geography? Where do you focus? Yeah, uh, so the way we think about geography or the primary dimension of geography uh, has less to do with where a company is headquartered or where it was founded um, than where its customer base uh, is today or or, uh, looks to be primarily. While certainly the world is is becoming increasingly global and and technology is having a uh, very strong impact on that, in fact, whether you look at um, you know, the cloud's uh, capability to allow folks to build software businesses anywhere, uh, you know, where there's talent, um, to, frankly, the ubiquity of, of Internet access allowing delivery of what had historically been relatively heavyweight enterprise software to, you know, anyone's laptop or, or mobile phone, um, we see companies being founded everywhere. But North America, for us, is still the largest single homogenous software market in the world. Uh, yes. So no matter where a company is founded, we find that, that also we can be most helpful um, when those companies are focused on building out uh, North American customer base as a primary emphasis. So we've certainly invested in many companies in the United States, whether they're on the West Coast, in New York, in Boston, in Seattle, in Salt Lake, in Austin, and the list goes on, but have also obviously made investments you know, north or over the border in Canada, made investments in Europe, in Israel, uh, in Australia. And, and again, the commonality across these um, is that ultimately they're looking to build uh, the core of their business uh, in North America or, or the United States. Okay. 
Now, um, you've been investing for a while, so let's look at your 2017 deal flow. Um, give us some flavor of um, what trends are you seeing? So how many deals do you see in a year? How many do you invest in? And what are the highlights of the trends in that deal flow? And let's just focus right now on 2017 just because we've just finished that time and it gives us a snapshot of what's contemporary. Yeah, more than happy to. As a firm, um, we speak with roughly 5,000 companies a year uh, and mm-hmm. invest in five. So, invest uh, there's, there's five? Five, that's right. Five, okay. Highly concentrated investors. In any given fund, yep. we don't let the law of large numbers govern our return profile, which is generally the venture model, right? Is yeah, no, no, totally. And hoping a few, a very small number of them grow. Uh, we actually take the opposite approach uh, and make very concentrated, from a venture perspective, investments in a small number and select number of teams and companies that we do think have the opportunity to be large and enduring. Um, so, yep. yeah, every year we talk to, and, and 17 was no, no different, roughly 5,000 companies and, and invest in five. Um, however, they're, they're absolutely, given the number of, of uh, businesses and entrepreneurs that we speak with, uh, trends that we can see year over year. Uh, and, you know, one of the more interesting ones that we saw last year actually is directly related to, to the previous question around geography, which is if you go back even three years, I'd be hard-pressed uh, to point to you know uh, even a handful of business software companies founded outside mm-hmm. the United States um, that had the opportunity to be category leaders, right? Yeah. You know, we could point to Zendesk, we could point to Atlassian, we could point to there was a handful, um, but yep. that has that is changing. We're seeing more and more yep. businesses that are not necessarily founded or headquartered in the United States that again might be um, Asia, certainly uh, Australia, EU, Israel, where those entrepreneurs not only have the ambition to be the global leader, um, but actually have, have the, the capability to, to do so. Um, and so mm-hmm. if we look back at um, you know, many of our last investments, we've actually invested in more companies headquartered outside the United States than, than in. So. Let's double-click down on uh, some of your investments in the recent years, um, and, and uh, let's kind of take some examples. So it are, uh, in terms of trends, is the geographical trend the, the only major trend that you want to discuss? No, I mean, so there's, there's, uh, there's a number, right? I think that one certainly spiked. Uh, uh, one large one that we're seeing uh, really is in, in business model and, and go-to-market model approach. Um, folks have been you know, using a word or sort of a phrase for a long time called sort of consumerization of the enterprise. The, the way we yep. think of these, these things are product-led growth models. So software, whether it's you know, deep infrastructure uh, or relatively lightweight application software, whether you know, in large uh, horizontal markets or specific vertical markets, are you know, increasingly thinking and, and taking product-led approaches uh, to their go-to-market. And that's something where, again, you know, three to five years ago was an extreme exception, right? Fewer than 1% of businesses um, that we looked at closely had that model. And now I'd say a majority of the businesses that, um, you know, that we're investing in take that approach. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's another. I'd say a, a final trend uh, actually has to do with, um, with the financing markets, which is increasingly um, – you know, over the last several years, there's been uh, a large amount of seed stage capital available 
whether from sort of the traditional sources, individual angels or, or seed groups, um, but increasingly funds that we'd see not active in the seed ecosystem becoming active, uh, as well as, you know, given the pull market uh, for the last, you know, getting close to, to 10 years now, and certainly the success of tech within that, um, you know, sort of a, a whole new class of, of successful individuals who are looking as a primary mechanism to grow their wealth and to give back to the community, um, activating as angel investors. And so while companies outside of major technology areas historically, right, would bootstrap often to, um, to relatively decent revenue scale, we're seeing a larger percentage of companies raising, even if it's a, a modest amount of angel or, or seed capital, even um, well outside of, of the major tech geographies. Yes. So there are five, 600 micro VCs operating right now, and that are mostly these are new funds that have sprouted in the last three years. So the, the amount of money that is going into uh, seed and seed as defined by pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, um, you know, has become a multi-stage investment in its own right. And, and that's actually, it's, it's an interesting situation because just like the numbers that you describe, you look at 5,000 deals and invest in five, the larger um, investment environment reflects those trends. There are, you know, I think the, the last concrete number I have is actually, I think, 2013, there were like 70,000 uh, seed investments um, and then only about 1,000, 1,200, maybe 1,500 at most Series A investments. And that, that ratio has remained more or less constant. I think there are 50 to 70,000 easily seed investments and then only about 1,200 to 1,500 BC investments, whether it's Series A or um, beyond. And yeah. that, that Series A gap is huge. I, th I think it's grown since then, actually. There, there's a larger number of seed investments, but the number of Series A investments actually hasn't changed materially over, over no. that period of time. But I think the gap has, has widened. And, and what's I interesting, agree, yeah. there's actually, there's a, in some sense, there's a barbell of capital availability. So on a relative basis at the seed stage, um, compared to the number of companies founded, there's there you know, never been more capital to, to put to work. Actually, the same thing is true in um, very late-stage venture or, or growth equity. So when we talk, talk, start talking about Series C or Series D rounds, there aren't actually mm -hmm. many, uh, there are more of those rounds than there used to be, but there's actually substantially more capital um, uh, than there are opportunities. Way more capital. <laughs> and so there's this, yes. It's not just a Series A gap, it's almost this barbell where many, many companies are getting seed funding, um, there's a similar number of A's and you know, roughly similar number of, of kind of you know, relatively early to mid-stage venture, kind of A's, B's, and C's. But in the later stage rounds, also a huge amount of capital. And so what, what seems to be happening, um, at least from kind of where I sit, is first there's, there's a culling mechanism. So many, many more companies are being founded. And it's, it's actually, I think, for the tech ecosystem, great. Because if, if someone's got a great idea, they believe it's, first of all, they believe the right route is to raise seed money or, or to eventually be venture-backed, which is not necessarily, I think, the right route for, for every company. Um, but for those where it is, they have the opportunity to do that. As a result, because there's more companies being founded, those um, that could get Series A funding are on average higher quality uh, than have been before, both because of the product markets and just sort of the, the numbers there. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a very similar process and successful companies 
end up having an increasing amount of, of access to private capital once they pass uh, pass that gamut. And so the other edge is that there's you know there's a Series A gap and there's an IPO uh, glut, right? And then sort of those are the two interesting new new dynamics happening at each each end. Well, there's another dynamic which is a lot of these seed stage investors who are uh, you know working in the very early stages, the pre-seed seed kinds of investors are exiting into those kinds of mega rounds that come Absolutely. into B or C. And that, I think, is a very healthy trend because I think these two segments are different. It could take a long time to traverse the full spectrum from you know, friends and family and pre-seed all the way to something that is actually scaling at a significant pace. And, and, and the, you, you can't have small funds taking positions all the way through. It's not easy to do that. But I also have some mixed feelings about, uh, you know, this over-investment in the pre-seed seeds. Uh, pre-seed actually doesn't have over-investment. It's more seed, uh, post-seed where we see over-investment. And I think in many of these cases, actually, these companies don't have either the velocity or the TAM to be venture-funded companies, but the entrepreneurs are setting themselves up with expectations that they're going to be venture-funded companies. And instead, if they were setting up their mental model such that they're going to be bootstrap companies, they would be a lot more successful. So I think so in I a way could, they're I kind of... agree more. Yeah. I, agree more. I think this yeah. is creating a very unhealthy dynamic. Yeah, well, um, part of the problem is... Uh, I think, and this is again, whether it's well market, you know, culture of celebrity, increased amount of capital, you, there's, there's probably a confluence of, of reasons. Um, founders are often idolizing, and, and the industry and media right around tech has idolized raising large rounds of capital and getting certain valuations as milestones of success, as opposed to building uh, large businesses uh, and building businesses that have sound economics. And so what we yeah. see often is, is first-time or younger entrepreneurs idolizing the, the process and, and uh, an outcome of raising capital uh, and the valuations associated with those raises as opposed to individuals building really successful businesses. That's uh, right. So, you know, we certainly see it. I mean, I, I think there are some entrepreneurs that are, are looking to, to fight the tide. So if I actually you know, speak, go back to, to my pre-open view time when, when I was at Bessemer Venture Partners, made a, a seed investment, uh, let us seed investment in a company called Zapier, which uh, allows anyone to connect um, individual SaaS applications to, to work together. And I think they, they just released their numbers on Business Insider or another, but they, that's the only investment they took. It's $1.2 million, and they're now a you know, $35 million ARR SaaS business generating cash, right, um, in a couple mm-hmm. of years. So it's more stories like that, I think, getting out um, with entrepreneurs that are focused on building quality businesses uh, and focused on their results as opposed to, to focus on the amount of capital they can raise and, and at what valuation. So um, talk about a few of your portfolio companies. and In particular, I think it's very interesting to hear from you about some of these companies abroad that you are um, investing in that are grow, you know, expanding in America. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll talk about... Um, uh, several in in our portfolio, and perhaps an emphasis on on some of the ones that uh, that, that I work with. So over the last really the last you know, four four-ish years, with the transition uh, starting six months ago, I was very focused on the generational transition in in enterprise infrastructure from on-premise 
inflexible and, and often kind of slow <laughs> development environments uh, to flexible infrastructure, whether it be public, private, cloud, um, the entire stack, frankly, from storage all the way through application software like monitoring, management, uh, needing to be rewritten, and, and also cultural change in development um, towards, you know, from agile increasingly to uh, rapid and then, you know, continuous uh, delivery. And again, the whole, whole ecosystem around software development needing to, to change. And so many of the investments I've made in the last several years fall into those themes and, and principally in and around helping companies bridge the transition. You know, while, you know, you and I live and breathe the, uh, the startup ecosystem and, and everyone's skating, you know, well ahead of where the puck is, the reality is we're, we're still in the relatively early innings of, of that infrastructure transition. And so one, um, one great example of a company that's founded outside the United States um, but is now building up, you know, the majority of their business uh, and the emphasis they're going to market in the U.S. is a company called uh, Logs.io. So we invested, uh, we led the Series B uh, in October of 2016, and we actually just recently doubled down in the business uh, and led the Series C as well. Uh, it's a log management and analytics provider. And so what they're able to do is take in the you know, individual pieces of data that any connected device, whether it's a server, a laptop, increasingly a phone, a TV, something, a small sensor out in the field, help process that data and not just make it available uh, and searchable for the small percentage of operations professionals who know how to analyze um, logs and, and understand the query languages to do so, but make it available for every developer, for folks that are, are customer-facing in, in technical products that can get value mm -hmm. out of that information through an interesting layer of, of machine intelligence. And where is this company from? So they were, uh, they were founded in Tel Aviv, uh, and mm -hmm. they have a, a second office now uh, in, in Boston. Okay. So Israel has been um, probably the, uh, at the forefront of this trend of founding companies, good companies, you know, in, in uh, Israel and then bringing them into America and scaling them in America. We have, are there other geographies from which you are seeing successful scaling? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, Australia is a great one. Um, so uh, last year we invested in a company called Deputy. And, and the way to think about uh, Deputy is it's a workforce management communication platform for hourly or, or shift-based workers, which is you know, north of 60% of, of the global workforce. Uh, and so it allows everyone from an, in, you know, an individual uh, you know, business owner, single practitioner, uh, who has folks that are, are working in their store through global enterprises trying to manage uh, sort of shift-based workers uh, across the world, understand um, who works best with whom, handle all the scheduling, um, and, and frankly put that scheduling in the workers' hands so that they can trade shifts uh, and better manage, frankly, their own work life um, than they could with a, a legacy application or, or some uh, time tracker like Kronos, which is sitting on the wall uh, when you come into the office to, to check in. And that's a company that was bootstrapped up until our investment in the business um, to several million in annual current revenue, growing very quickly, um, again, with one of these product-led growth models. So, you know, they're based in, in Sydney, Australia, had customers all over the world, in fact, had talked to, you know, only up to 5% of their customer base by the time that we invested because folks were able to find the product, start using it, become successful with it, and use more over time and get embedded in the organization. And so we see... So we know Deputy very well. We've covered uh, 
the company extensively in entrepreneur journeys as well as they came to our roundtable as a guest. Ashik Ahmed came Wonderful. to our roundtable as a guest. So that's a company that went uh, that bootstrapped to about a $10 million annual revenue run rate before you guys came into that company. So yes, I'm very aware of that company. I like that company very much, actually. Yeah, Sheik is, uh, is a wonderful entrepreneur, and, and we think it's you know, one of the largest market opportunities that's, that's still untapped for software. So that's, that's probably the, you know, one of the best examples in, in recent years. Yeah, okay. And um, how do you parse unicorn mania? <laughs> uh, and, and by unicorn mania, do, do you mean sort of the, the number of companies that have you know, billion-dollar-plus valuations that are, are still private? Well, a lot of things. There's, you know, there's unicorn mania in that there, there are so many funds that are, you know, there's so much capital, as you pointed out earlier, in the late stages, there's so much capital right now. And, and there's a rush to fund these later stage companies and overfund these later stage companies. So last year, we did an extensive coverage of uh, a phenomenon, a, a unicorn mania negative phenomenon called death by overfunding. There were a lot of debts by overfunding. These were very good companies, could have been fine companies if they were modestly financed, but they just completely went crazy and went ahead of themselves and, and basically imploded. Um, so that's one part of the unicorn mania. The other part of the unicorn mania is this absurd liquidation preferences to create a valuation that hits unicorn, like billion-dollar valuation, and the entrepreneur is getting carried away by that. So there's a, there's a series of uh, you know, unhealthy um, behavioral practices that have developed around an unicorn mania. And, and, and to be fair, right now, there is a lot more awareness around this issue. So I think that the phenomenon has slowed down a bit. It's certainly slowed down around the world. It has also slowed down a bit in Silicon Valley. So I'm just curious at how you, you know, observe it, analyze it. What uh, what are your comments on the topic? Yeah, so it's it's something I, I sort of thought a lot about, and actually, if I written about, sorry, I, I, in 2015, even I think in mid 2015, I, I wrote an article uh, in TechCrunch about exactly this, um, with with some of the same points, basically saying, okay, let, let's look at the data and try to understand. You know what? What's driving these astronomical valuations, and, and why are companies raising uh, more and more capital on a late stage without without going public? And and what we saw was first, while the amount of capital in general raised by what you would classically call uh, growth equity or, or very late stage venture um, GPs hadn't really changed from 2005 to 2014, um, the number of funds raising that capital roughly halved. And so what you had was a situation where on average, fund sizes grew by almost 100% over that 10-year yeah. period. And then the average deal, or the median, I should say, deal size uh, for a, a growth investment or a size of investment went from roughly $11 million to a little over $20 million. So similarly, the amount of capital invested, because the fund's twice as big, they don't have twice as many partners, so they're doing, right. uh, investing roughly the same number of deals, so the investment size doubles. And then you also saw in that same 10-year period um, that the median pre-money valuation doubled. Uh, and as a result, um, there was in some sense, uh, whether you know, some people would say vicious, some people would say virtuous, but either way, a very strong cycle of, of private capital, right? Because you had larger funds uh, 
um, which ultimately allowed these GPs to earn higher management fees, uh, and you know they were able to therefore make more competitive. Entrepreneurs could raise more money and hire more aggressively um, and burn more. But but ultimately, that leaves you with not you know it reduces flexibility substantially. You can either a uh, get acquired for a very high price, and the frequency or the number of um, tech acquisitions over a billion or even frankly over you know two to three hundred million hasn't changed dramatically. It's gone up That's but right. at a much lower Very rate rare. than the number of unicorns. Your other option is to go public. However, if you've raised substantially more money uh, as a company to get to, let's say, the same revenue scale, maybe a little bit faster, but the same revenue scale as peers in years prior, um, now there's some that, that maintained, I would say, uh, a sort of judicious use of that capital, but many were burning much more heavily, and they'd look at then the valuation difference between their recent private marks and how, uh, how the public markets would fundamentally value them and you know, would get trapped. Obviously, some have, have crossed that chasm and some very, very successfully, um, but most haven't. Uh, option three, which is stay private and, and work to reach profitability. I think that's the path that, that most of, of these companies uh, have taken, and it's a hard path. Uh, and, and an arduous one. Um, and the, the, the fourth, which is, I, I think, uh, one that no one unfortunately wants to go down but does occasionally happen, is flame out. Right? For those that are unable to get to profitability or at least to get to a point where um, their investors and, and their management teams are, are comfortable going public and comfortable with the valuation that the public markets will put on the company, these companies, um, they get stuck. So, uh, you know, we, we see the phenomenon and, and I... You know, it's funny. Unlike the um, uh, sort of the end of, of the, the bubble in the early 2000s, there there isn't going to be a moment of reckoning. We're we're in a, a long drawn out process um, where uh, where I think these companies will will come back to earth. Yeah, yeah, because venture capital has a very long cycle, <laughs> and the, these bloated, hyper bloated funds will continue to remain hyper bloated for a long time. You're talking about bigger, a decade right? before any adjustment takes place, at least. Well, and they're still raising large funds, right? I think you. you know, and they're still raising very large funds. But you can see a handful of uh, of growth funds continuing to raise at record levels, right? Some reaching yes. six billion or more. Uh, and so that's, you know, well, and then there's the outlier, which is SoftBank, which uh, it seems like all the, you know, somewhat dysfunctional, overfunded companies are going to eventually end up in the arms of SoftBank. We'll, we'll see what they do. I think, you know, they're the outlier <laughs> among outliers. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, they're certainly all going to come across their desk. We'll, we'll see which right. ones they engage with. And SoftBank, uh, you know, is still investing these hyper-large rounds, even in companies that are showing somewhat dysfunctional statistics. So they may be doing down rounds, but they're, they're kind of taking this as an opportunity to, you know, get into companies that, are, that have some level of success but are, you know, now reaching a, kind of like a plateau and are overfunded and so forth. So I see see that phenomenon happening as well. So it's it's kind of an interesting trajectory of these unicorn companies that are uh, again not entirely healthy. Yeah, and, and that's to be clear. Look, we're, we're, there's, there's a subset of them, right? Uh, many are fantastic businesses and and will continue to be. 
Um, you know, there's a universe of, of those that are and, and we're not related to a period of time. There's a universe of those that um, are but continue to raise in the private markets, um, frankly, uh, for pretty logical reasons. And then obviously there's, there's a set that, um, you know, that have, a, have some serious challenges. And so it's hard to make blanket statements uh, across kind of the, the overall, call it, you know, herd of unicorns. Um, and certainly can't speak for the vast majority of them to, to the details of any of the situations. But, but I agree, if you just look at the math of uh, amount of capital raised, valuation, overall kind of company value in the herd, uh, amount of available uh, slots for IPOs, and, and the number of acquisitions that occur, there, yeah, the, there's an equation there. Um, yeah. All right, well, that was an excellent discussion, and um, Thank you, Mackie, for sharing your perspective. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Um, if you have um, time in any of the upcoming weeks to come to our uh, free public roundtables, just go to the website 1m1m.com and sign up to pitch or attend. If you want to pitch, we can actually roll up our sleeves and work on your venture um, and you know do the strategic discussions. Um, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of recordings available on our YouTube channel as well. So by all means, use all the resources that are available from 1 million by 1 million, and we'll be back with another edition of the podcast soon. Thank you for coming. Bye.